Hey guys, so I'm going to do something really different today, and that is I'm going to cross-post a podcast that I was actually a guest on. Uh, as actually, what, a year and a half ago or so in November of 2019. I was interviewed by my friend Jose Briones, who has a show called Disruptive Adventism. And uh, it was when I was visiting down in Tennessee speaking for a conference, and he took me aside and, and uh, interviewed me. I, I was, uh, I, I'd forgotten about it, and the other day I was looking through a podcast to listen to as I was doing some dishes, and I just came across uh, Disruptive Adventism. I said, oh, let me see what's going on with there, with, with that show. And I went over, and just incredibly ironically, uh, my interview was the latest episode, which was, again, like almost a year and a half, uh, I don't know, uh, 15 months after we recorded it. So um, anyway, I listened to it just because I was curious what I had said, and I thought it went really well, and it was kind of fun to be on the receiving end of questions. And uh, I think Jose's podcast is really, really good. Like, it's just so much better than my podcast just the way he produces it, edits it. And uh, so I just wanted to, to post that, and uh, that would be this, this week's episode. Um, I think you'll, be, you'll probably hear a lot of the things that I've already said on this show, but it just give you a little different approach to it. Um, go check out Jose's podcast, Disruptive Adventism, and uh, I think you know there, there are some thought-provoking episodes he has on there. He's a really cool dude. Really, like I said, really, really good, well-produced podcast. And so I just thought I would roll that one today per Jose's permission. And so I hope you enjoy and are stimulated by and impressed with um, what Jose and I talk about on Disruptive Adventism. Welcome back to Season 4 of the Lead Podcast. My name is Jose Briones. I'm filling in for Ryan Becker. I'm hosting this season as a guest. And brace yourself because we have Sean Brace. Corny joke, of course. Uh, uh, really? First time? Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but Sean, uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, we're going to be talking about how to kill your church and bring it back to life. So, But for the listeners that do not know what you do and who you are, uh, tell us where you're from, tell us what you do, and tell us who's your favorite football team. <laughs> well, first of all, Jose, I'm really glad that you're doing this and not Ryan. So that's really cool. I mean, I'm just kidding. I, I, I have nothing against Ryan. Uh, so I am a pastor in Bangor, Maine, way up there in the middle of nowhere, um, halfway up the state of Maine. And I've been pastoring there for nine years and almost nine years. And um, just cut to the chase. My favorite team is the greatest football team on earth, of course, the New England Patriots. You probably just lost. We just lost half of our listeners right now. I think. Well, that's all right. I mean, if they don't want to listen, they they shouldn't listen anyway. <laughs> the lead podcast is about, you know, creating and understanding and the cutting edge of Adventism in the world, of course. And I want to understand, like, what is the thing that kills churches? What is the thing that kills churches? Well, me, I'm trying to. Um, no, I, I, I think churches are kind of dying themselves, and we just, we just heard it a little bit in some of the meetings that you and I have been involved with here. Uh, Tom Rayner 
one of the things he mentioned was that churches uh, don't reach people because they don't try to reach people. And so there's a whole assortment of reasons why churches are dying. You know, 65 to 90 percent of them are dying or plateaued in the United States and like 175 are closing each week in America, which is just astounding. Um, I think for in my experience, and this is just me because I've pastored in one single place my whole ministry, not the same city, but the same region, um, there's a lot of preoccupation with the past. And I think we need to be aware of and appreciative of the past, but when it becomes the prevailing um, narrative through which we experience and pursue church, we're more interested in preserving the past than moving on into the future and reaching our communities. And that's, I think, ultimately what kills them. So you're saying that clinging to the past is what's keeping our churches dying. I, I would I would propose that's a very significant part of it. I mean, if you really, like the most most fundamental level is a, a lack of understanding of the gospel. And it starts with that, um, a, a real encounter with an understanding of the gospel keeps people enslaved to, I would say, outdated forms of, of church and mission and evangelism, if they're even trying mission and evangelism at all. Um, so yeah, I mean, that sounds like an easy cliche answer, but a misunderstanding of, or lack of appreciation for the gospel, which leaves people in a cold, lifeless experience religiously. It seems to me that what you're mentioning is that the reality in which we are right now is usually looking at the great days. Mm, Yeah. The good, yeah. The The golden age. Yeah. Of Christianity. Yeah. Now, is that only true? Is this tradition? Is that what you're mentioning? Like doctrinal and and methodological? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I actually just did a whole podcast called Ellen White Hates Tradition and or How I Became Liberal. That's a little plug for my podcast. Um, But yeah, I would say, I mean, that's all. I mean, I don't know how much time we have, but that is a huge question with that's a very complex discussion but um yeah i would say mostly there is a devotion to cultural forms and because we have a a lack of gospel understanding we find our security in right belief and don't get me wrong i love like our teaching our avenus theology i love it um but we're not we're not saved by right doctrine. Uh, we're not saved by right belief. Um, so there's a devotion to right belief. There's a devotion and commitment to certain forms of church life, certain forms of, of mission and evangelism that makes us increasingly irrelevant to not only a lot of our own people, like especially younger people, but increasingly irrelevant to people around us in our communities and cities. Mm. You mentioned the word irrelevant. Mm. Can you unpack that a little bit more? What does an irrelevant church look like? <laughs> what does, well, about, I mean, just step into about 99% of Seventh-day Adventist churches and it won't take you long. Um, again, that's a huge question and it's maybe my my 
the thing I would say the most is um, part of my burden is to help people recognize that church is not an event and it's not a place. It's, it's a people who are living life in the world and incarnating the gospel in the world. And so even a, I, I would dare say, even a church with, you know, great music and great preaching and fog, you know, machines. And like I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but actually that, if that's the main thing, that's an irrelevant church as well. Um, so it's not, it's not simply about having a certain style of worship. It's how do we primarily consider the transfer of the gospel taking place? Is it having people come to us or is it us going to them? Um, are we entering into life with people and living out the truth of the gospel before their eyes. Um, so as long as we are consciously doing that, church is not irrelevant, no matter what we do on a weekend gathering or in a building or whatever. But, but with that being said, let me, let me also add this. We can, we can make our weekend Sabbath morning services more relevant as well. And that's, I think, a part of it, but not primarily what it is. Before we get into how to bring the churches back to life, mm -hmm. uh, those churches that may be dying, those churches that need revitalization, right? Mm -hmm. I would like to know, what's your thought about letting churches die? Mm. Because mm -hmm. I think in Adventism, especially, we have this idea that we should never give up and never close a church. What do you think about that? Yeah, I'd say let them die. <laughs> I mean, um, so like my gifting is more apostleship. It's not shepherding. So you have to understand where I'm coming from. Um, but I think if if churches refuse to, as long as, as long as they're open to trying to be a presence in a legitimate presence in 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 the place where they are located. I think we need to keep them, you know, keep them going because if they're open to doing that, then there's hope. But as long as a church is like either plateaued or in decline and has no interest in making any changes, then I think it's unhealthy to keep them going because they're just. They're not real. They're not in, in actually any biblical sense. They're not really a church. So we can call them whatever we want, but they're not even really churches. So um, that's yeah, that's my take on it. You said that when they are not reaching the needs of the people and actually engaging with individuals, but a lot of churches don't do that already. So what do we do with numbers? Because we may have a hundred member church, but that may not be doing that, you know, and eventually is going to start dying. Let's start going. This is a middle church, I guess, you know, it's not dead, but it's, it's going to die at some point in time. How do we revitalize that context? Yeah. Well, one of the most critical parts of revitalization is um, helping people understand the urgency of the situation. And so that's part of um, here at this conference, I'm talking about how to kill a church. Like um, there has to be some drastic steps that are taken to help people see the need 
And so until they're able to do that, you're not going to be able to do anything. It's like, it's like an alcoholic, like it has to hurt enough in order for them to make a change. And so for a church, and actually I would propose to you that even if there's 500 members that are like active in that church, if it is self-serving, that church needs to have a major death and resurrection as well. And that's that's actually a really hard thing to do because people think, oh, you know, there's lots of people coming, you know, we're, tithe is, is going well and, you know, we're active. But if it's not actually impacting the community in a tangible way that is not self-serving, again, I'm not sure that it is um, really by definition being a church. So um, step number one is just helping people see the urgency of the matter. And sort of what my journey was um, is that I somewhat intentionally slash uh, unintentionally killed my church by neglect. And um, it kind of just ran itself into the ground. And that was like I said, sort of intentional and sort of unintentional, but I realized that things needed to get really, really bad and people need to get really desperate in order to get to a place where they said, okay, we need to do something different. Talking about that something different, right? Now we kind of analyze a little bit of the middle church. Let's go one level below, which is the dying church. 10 members, 15 members out in the country, far away from you know, society, it can reach some people, but not all people. Mm -hmm. What do we do? What do we do? Well, I, it starts, I mean, in some ways, the, the smaller the number, the better, actually, because then you can really press into conversation and community. And you can, people are really aware of, hopefully by God's grace, they're aware of the, the need. And so it just happens like what it is, is conversation by conversation. So if you're a pastor, if you're an elder, whatever, you know, a lay leader, uh, just starting to gather people in the conversation, going to one person who you think might be the most open to, to major change, having conversations with that person, taking them now along the journey and saying, okay, who else can we now talk to? Go to the next person, have conversations with them, and then bringing that group, all who are open together and prayerfully going over the gospel, learning the gospel, and learning the practical missional implications of the gospel and saying, okay, if if we are going to live this thing out, what would it look like for us now as God's people? Um, so and that's going to take time. Um, it takes I've heard people say three to five years to really turn, turn a church around. So you have to have the long, uh, the long view in mind. Um, but yeah, I mean, it sounds again, like a cliche, but just has to be conversation by conversation. Mm. I'd love for us to get a picture from the ideas that you have implemented. So tell me a story, a recollection somewhere where you remember there's a turning point here. Let me use that in order to revitalize and to re-energize this church so that we can boom again and not boom in numbers, but like in engagement and community conversation, the things that you have talked about. Yeah. I think there would probably be a few of those kind of really pivotal turning points. Uh, the first one would be about four years ago, um, we started down this path of we want to plant a new church. And um, it was... I, you know, we formed like a planting team and we got that team together. And I really had no idea what it would look like to plant a new church. And 
but we brought people together and we were just living, uh, we were just hanging out in a, in a living room and it was something that I had never experienced before in that, um, in that church and really any church. And as I was sitting there in that living room and we were praying together, we were worshiping together and we were just talking about what it meant to be like sent by God into our community. I was just like, man, I, I was like, why is church, does it have to be something more than this? Like, why can't it just be us hanging out with each other, worshiping together, you know, encouraging one another. And it was like right then and there, I, my, my, my mindset started shifting from, we got to put on these great programs to let's just be a community together in, in, as God's people. And then a few years later, so that started developing more and more and more. And then, um, uh, I, I tell the story a lot and I've written about it, but, um, I was in a, uh, city council meeting in my city and they were talking about, uh, having first responders being able to use Narcan which is a drug that is used to bring people who have overdosed from opiates back to life and basically back to life. And um, one of my friends who was the, the, the council chair at that time was just telling about how one of his neighbors had passed away from an overdose and like everyone was just sobbing and crying and, you know, we need to, we need to, you know, do something to really turn around this, this uh, epidemic that has taken place in the state of Maine as with a lot of states and everyone was just so moved by this. And a few weeks later, I was with some of my um, some of my church members who were concerned about us, what we were doing with our planting idea. And one of the um, gentlemen was really upset, and he said, "You know what? On your planting team, you've taken two out of our three piano players from our church. And what are we going to do? We're going to only have one piano player left." And um, it was like, it was just like I had a moment of clarity where I thought. You know, the, our our city is worried about losing lives, and we're sitting here talking about worried about losing piano players. And my whole like paradigm was just shifted at that time. Where, again, if we're not in the city, if we are not in the trenches, if we are not coming alongside of people and entering into life with them, what does it matter if we have the best piano player in the world? And I actually said to the to the guy rather kind of like smugly, I was like, well, let me ask you, did Jesus have a piano player when he was, you know, doing his ministry and yet he changed the world? And um, so it just shifted my whole paradigm. Um, and then slowly we started having more conversation. We didn't end up um, planting a new church. We realized that we didn't want to just plant another worship service. And so we're going to, we were trying to be community together and uh, train and disciple people to be in the community as disciple makers. And so, you know, it's been a slow, long journey and we're getting there, but yeah. Well, that's, I think it's, it's a good, um, I don't know, like ideology to have that if you're not with people, then, you know, you're not doing anything. You're, you're worrying about the menial issues. Now there are a lot of leaders, a lot of people that are listening to this podcast who may not have the ability, right. To plant a church or to step out out of their boundaries within a certain regional area, or they may have three, four, five churches. You know, if you have a church, of course, like you can expand and experiment and do something else, right? And you may have a great strong presence and monetary. What happens? What do I do? How do I revitalize my church when I don't have anything to start from? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, that's, again, that's a really good question. I, so at that time when I was doing this, I had, I did have more than one church. Um, and, uh, I just basically said, you know, I feel like God's called me to focus on this church where there's a bigger city and a bigger presence and that other church, God bless them. They were blissfully traditional and like, we don't want to do anything except, you know, sit here and just talk to each other. And, um, I just felt empowered by God. And I, 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 fortunately I had like administration that was fine with that at, at that time. Um, and so I just, yeah, I, I mean, if you're in a context where you have many churches or you feel like you don't have resources, I mean, we're all, God is, God has resourced all of us and he's not, he is not, um, he's not called us to failure. And, you know, we don't, and honestly, and honest, all honesty, we don't, we don't need really many financial resources, if at all, like with, with what we're trying to do in the last couple of years, we've literally spent probably like a thousand dollars. Like that's all we've spent. And yet we have, we have created a different culture at our church that is slowly, but surely becoming a, a safe community for people who don't know Jesus, a safe community for those who have felt rejected by Jesus through his people. And, um, it's just taken very little. So financially, you don't really, you don't really need anything financially. I'm, I, I, that's what I sincerely believe. Um, and it's all it takes is just one or two people who are willing. So that's what I'm saying. Like, and that was what part of the other, other key moment is that when, when we, when I felt impressed that God was leading us to like restart the church that we had originally thought about planting out of, um, I just felt impressed to like start going to one or two people and saying, is this something that you think would be a good idea? And I was ready at any step to, to just abandon the whole idea. But everyone said, you know what, things are so bad that let's, let's do something different. And so like I went to 20 people, all 20 people said the same thing. So again, it just takes, it doesn't take a lot of people. It takes one or two, or even if it's just literally yourself, like it takes you and just go to, you know, go into our communities. And if that's what it takes to like reach out to people who are, would be discipled in the mission that we feel God has called us to be on, then God can take those people and, and incorporate them into what he's trying to do. It seems like you're definitely embracing, embracing the mission day, right? Like the mission of God and just letting him dictate where we're supposed to go. Um, one question that I do have is for the pastor or the leader or the elder that's least listening to, to this and thinking, this sounds great. This sounds awesome. How can I start? What are the steps that I need to take in order to unleash the gospel mm -hmm. and be present for individuals and their needs? Yeah. I would say the easiest thing. This is going to sound so simple. It's not even, it's, it's funny. The easiest thing, if, and it, it just, I think it will open up a floodgate of, of excitement. This is how it started for me is just have your neighbors over for dinner. Is that like really simple? Isn't that really simple, Jose? It, it is <laughs> <laughs> too simple, <laughs> too simple. But I found that when we started on this type of journey, that 
was very motivating and exciting. And it may not literally be your neighbor, but that's an easy place to start. Um, but when when people in our in my congregation started experiencing stuff like that, when you have people who are used to only being in this bubble their whole lives, and you know, this is just my context. My wife likes to share how she didn't have a friend who wasn't an Adventist until she was twenty seven. When when she and I and other people just started realizing, you know what, those are human beings over there. I'm a human being. And just hanging out with them like is not that difficult to do. And I can just have them come and they can have dinner at my table or I can go to a restaurant with them and just start hanging out with people like that. It is really contagious. And I think once you just take that simple step and you start, you know, you just are praying and asking God, okay, God, what are you up to and who are you bringing into my life? Then it just can go from there really quickly and easily. Not to say that, like when I say quickly, I don't mean like, hey, you're going to have a church of, you know, a thousand all of a sudden, but your passion for and your excitement about that particular calling that God, I believe, has given all of us um, is very rapid and exciting. And he'll like I'm not I'm not a, a real good um, strategist or like uh, systems thinker. And so I like I only know kind of what the next step is. And we learn as we go. And so just doing that and ask God to show you what the next step is after that, he can do that. And also listen to my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Um, Which is the name again? Mission Lab. Mission Lab. So it is where you experiment. Yeah, we we expound on that. Right. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Um, One more question before we get to, I want to give you a final stab or challenge that you want to give to the listeners. Uh, But one final question that I do have is when it comes to killing and reviving your church is what was your dependence on prayer, God, during this time? What were some of those spiritual practices that you were continually doing so that you were aligned with God's mission to, to the city? Well, for me, I've, I haven't had, I, I don't know if this has been anyone else's experience, but early in my ministry, I had a lot of guilt and shame over my lack of prayer and devotional life. And, you know, it would be inconsistent and, you know, this, that, and the other. And about four or five years ago, a little before this all started happening, prayer and like being in scripture and, um, reading like this like this goes back to the podcast i said i just had um reading actually ellen white which was somewhat surprising when i discovered that she was so liberal and so missional in her thinking um like reading acts of the apostles uh but that stuff like prayer became uh, i i like to tell people it's like breathing for me i can't survive without it and there was so much there has been and continues to be so much adversity and so much, um, so many impossibilities. And like, I'm kind of like the children of Israel. God does something. And then like the next day I'm like, oh man, God, it's all going to come crashing down. And like, this is doomed. And, you know, here's another barrier. And so like, it's forced me to just be on my knees. I, well, I mean, just on a very practical level, I journal, I prayer journal. Um, and that has been really helpful, not only because when you're writing it, it's helpful to process it, but 
every few months I'll go back and, and read what I've written and I'm just reminded afresh that God is working and you know things that I was worried about back then, like three months later, a year later, I'm like, oh, okay. You know, like God had that all figured out. And so it's a constant reminder that God is like he's leading and that not that I'm perfect and that we haven't made mistakes, but um, those are some very easy, practical. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. Um, well, one more thing, whatever you want to say, a challenge to the leaders that are listening to this podcast. Yeah. I would just say that I, until about three, four years ago, I don't think I was aware of the seismic shift that we needed to experience as a church. And, um, I have always understood that we've had a gospel deficit. I don't think I understood the practical implications of that missiologically and ecclesiologically. And as 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 leaders of uh, as uh, as leaders of the church, um, what is gonna, what's going to take to be God's people and being on His mission? It's not like little tweaks. It's not like oh, if we could just get better music, or if we could just get a better piano player, or if we could just get a better website or like those things, I'm not saying don't do them, but we like, we just need a, a total paradigm shift if we are going to continue or maybe not continue, but become once again, relevant and a part of our, our communities and our culture. And it's just, yeah, it's like, I don't think people fully understand the the serious change that needs to take place a whole complete paradigm shift and i would just encourage you um you know there's a couple books i could recommend like uh the forgotten ways by alan hirsch is a great book that i think every leader needs to read um and other books like that that are just i think really eye-opening about the the incredible change that we need to make if we're going to be on god's mission Support for this podcast comes from Progressive. Saving money on your car insurance is easy with Progressive. It's an average savings of $796 for customers who switch and save. In fact, customers can qualify for an average of six discounts on their auto policy with Progressive, including discounts just for starting a quote online or owning multiple vehicles. Get your quote online at Progressive.com and see how much you could be saving. National average annual car insurance savings by new customer surveyed who saved with Progressive in 2019. Discounts vary and are not available in all states and situations. Support for this podcast comes from Lexus. When you look at a successful modern leader, at first you might see an intimidating facade. But when you take a closer look, you'll find a very human core. That's why Lexus has engineered the new Lexus LS to a higher standard, the human standard. Humanity is at the heart of the new Lexus LS, with intuitively designed functions like a new touchscreen multimedia display that makes it easy to reach your team, and lane departure alert with steering assist that helps you get there. Because it's more than intelligence that we admire, it's the humanity behind it that will always take you further. Introducing the new Lexus LS, the most advanced LS yet. Learn more at Lexus.com LS.